Good morning, church. Today is our preparation day for the Ronald McDonald Serving Project, which takes place on Tuesday. So we're shortening the service just a tiny bit. So afterwards, we can get busy and start preparing everything that needs to be prepared for that project. So that'll be lots of fun. And there's lots of great stuff going on in the church. Of course, Brendan and Amber are now dating, which has awesome inspired Brendan to write a little bit of poetry. You go, brother. And we also had our sister move here, originally from the Philippines, but she also spent some time in the church in Kuwait. And so if May, if you could stand up, we'd like to introduce you to our fellowship this morning. If you could stand up just so we can see your face. And she is now here in Auckland. Great to have you here. And also, we will have a baptism today. At 1.30, and that'll be Timmy said. Where is Tim said? There, there he is, there he is. So if, if you'll stand up, so we can all see your face as well. <laughs> so that'll be at 1.30 after we're finished preparing. If you type in Judges Bay Road on your GPS or your phone, that's where we're going to be. There'll be a final announcement at the end of everything to inform you of that once more. Amen? So if you have a Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 8, and we'll have a short lesson from the Word of God, combined with a communion, which in church lingo is called sermunion. So if you're not familiar with that, that's what that is. There's a concept, though, in, in all kinds of, of life that's called equalizing, where you level the playing field so that everybody's kind of on the same plane, right? And so, so we're familiar with this, and we see this in many areas of life. For instance, if you haven't heard, there's a new program called... Called Kiwi Build, right? And this program is is designed to level the playing field to help people that are squeezed out of the housing market be able to purchase homes. And it was recently constructed. There's 20,000 people that have applied for this, and so the whole goal is really that everybody can get a fair shot, or at least that's that's the intention of it. And if you follow sports, LeBron James in the in the NBA recently transferred over to California, and because of this, everybody's shifting their teams around to level the playing field because everybody wants a fair shot at playing basketball. Now, on a more local level, likewise, I personally have decided to level the playing field with basketball when I play with teenagers. Recently, I played with Ryan and Timothy, and after I realized, you know what, I need to start playing with my left hand in order, in order just to level the playing field. It's simply not fair when I'm using my dominant hand. But this, this idea that we're, it's a truth, right? That we're, 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 people are looking for equalization. Why? Because division exists. That's a true thing. Some people don't have enough money to buy a house. Some people have too much. So let's level the playing field. Let's put a program together. Some people have more skill. Some people have less skill. So let's shoot with the left hand to level the playing field. But when we talk about this on a wider scale, like humanity, we we see this in race, right? You see this in ethnicity. But what's the equalizer there? How do you make everybody level? How do you level the playing field? Do you just throw more money at somebody? Do you just help them increase their skill to level the playing field? No, the Bible has the answer for the leveling of humanity, and it's the gospel message. And we'll see this presented in Acts chapter 8. Let's pray and read this together about the great equalizer. Father, we are grateful to come before you this morning and worship and to take communion. 
And we're also excited to see Tim get baptized and, and um, May join us here as well, Father. And we're just excited for everything that's going on. And uh, we pray that uh, your spirit really helps us understand the scriptures clearly and follow it clearly as well. And, and Father, although there's great things going on, there is uh, one, one last thing that I want to bring before the church. And our sister that was recently baptized, Mary saw her father has passed away this morning. And she's going back to the Philippines to visit her family. And we pray, first of all, that you can comfort her and her family, God. And that our prayers offer comfort as well. And that we're so grateful there's a sister church in Cebu where she can meet and be connected to the disciples there, Father. But we really just pray that you wrap your arms around her and her family during this difficult time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, yeah, if you could, please continue to pray for Mary Saul. She heads back this afternoon, I think, to, to the Philippines. So Acts chapter 8, we're picking up in verse, in verse, in verse 9, and there's, there's a few instances in the book of Acts where people receive the Holy Spirit outside of baptism. There's one in here, there's one Acts chapter 10, there's one in Acts chapter 19, and they're all unique events. We'll discuss those three combined at our next midweek, so we don't take away too much time from the service today to talk about that, because that's what happens here. And in verse 9 of Acts chapter 8, <coughs> let's read together. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Now this isn't like magic card tricks, okay? He's not a magician like we think of magicians. <clears throat> Every time magic is mentioned in the Bible, it's confronted. Think of Moses confronting the magicians with Pharaoh. Joseph does the same thing with Pharaoh. Here, against Simon the sorcerer. Later, Paul will confront. So magic in, in this world is like in contact with demonic evil spirits. It's not sleight of hand doing some magic tricks. So this guy has, has conjured up something and he's boasting, I'm a great man. And in verse 10, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now remember, Philip is one of the seven that was chosen to help distribute the needs among the widows. Now he's actually preaching the gospel as well. In verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, my magic was cool. This magic is cooler. Give me some of what you got so I can be more popular once more. That's kind of what's going on. And Peter answered to rebuke him. In verse 20, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. 
You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. That's like a discouraging thing to say to a young convert. I mean, this guy recently got baptized and you flat out need to repent. You have no part in this ministry. Verse 22, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And it's this kind of thought, oh, Peter's laying a curse on me. Because he's kind of magic in his mindset. In verse 25, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And we'll stop there. Now, the Holy, the, in the context, the Holy Spirit is starting to spread the church to the ends of the earth. In chapters 1 through 7, it's just Jerusalem. That was Jesus' instructions in Acts chapter 1. You're going to be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to all the ends of the earth. So chapters 1 through 7 just cover the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. But chapter 8, it starts to spread in Samaria, which is where Jesus said it was. And what's the catalyst for all this? Stephen's death, right? That's what happened earlier where Stephen gets persecuted, he gets killed, and the result, disciples are scattered everywhere. And it doesn't make them afraid, it makes them more courageous. But one thing, there are many things from this passage, but we're going to only talk about one this morning, and we're going to talk about the gospel being the great equalizer. Because it is, six times in this passage, Samaria as a city, or Samaritans are mentioned. In verse 1, it says, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That's where it mentions at the beginning of chapter 8. In verse 5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. In verse 9, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery, and everybody in Samaria was amazed. Once again, in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And then the whole account in verse 25 concludes with Peter and John going to all the towns where? In Samaria, as they make their way back to Jerusalem. Now, when we hear that, you know, six times over and over, Samaria accepted it. They went to Samaria. Probably doesn't make much sense because our ears are removed from this context. But to, to understand it, we're going to take just a simple tour of why there was so much conflict between Samaria and Jews. All right? Samaria was built by this king. That's him. That's actual footage of him building, building the... Samaria was built in the Old Testament. You can look at it. It's in 2 Kings. King Omri buys a hill, builds a city, calls it Samaria. And so eventually what happens is many of the 12 tribes of Israel move to that northern part of Israel. You'll see the upper part is Samaria. The lower part is Judah. But a lot of the tribes were living in that specific part. And Samaria was this place built by King Omri. Now, what happened is, <coughs> in the 700s BC, the neighboring countries, Assyria, come over and conquer Samaria. It's about 740 to 722 BC. And what they do is they take all those Jews captive and they take them to their homeland, Assyria. In addition, they start to put people from their homeland into Samaria. So the result is you've got Jews who stayed in Samaria, you've got people who are foreign coming in, and the result is they start to intermarry, they start to intermingle, not only relationally, but with their culture and with their faith. 
All right, so that's what happens. Now, later on in Israel's history, the southern kingdoms, Jerusalem, will get exiled by Babylon as well. But then at some point, King Cyrus says, okay, I'm going to make a, a policy. Everybody can go back. And I'm going to give you money to rebuild your temple. And so everybody kind of makes their way back to Jerusalem. This is around 5, 538 B.C. And so when they do so, everybody comes back. And the Samaritans in the northern part, <coughs> at one point they come down. And they say, let us help you rebuild the temple. Because we, we, we serve God like you do. This is in Ezra chapter 4. But Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple for our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Now, that, that's probably not the most encouraging response. Hey, we all worship the same God. Let's build a church together. We're in this together. We're on the same team. I don't think so. You don't have any part of this. You go back to Samaria. We're building this temple because it's ours. That's not really a statement designed to create unity. All right. So there, there's this. This is where the turning point even gets deeper between Samaria and Jerusalem, because now they kind of go back with an attitude and Jews kind of look on them with an attitude. And what happens is, is when they go back, they build Samaritans, build their own temple. Say, OK, you have a temple in Jerusalem. You don't want us to help. You. We'll build our own and we'll build it in Mount Gerizim. And plus, we'll revise the law, which you guys hold so highly. We'll make our own revisions because we want our own Pentateuch. We want our own law. So here these divisions start to really get deeper and deeper between Samaritans and Jews. <coughs> it carried on to Jesus' day. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends some people ahead and says, Hey, go to the Samaritan village so we can stay there and get things ready. But the people wouldn't welcome them. The Samaritans, because they were heading for where? Jerusalem. So even as Jesus is walking around the world, he says, hey, we're going to stop in Samaria. And they say, where are you going? Jerusalem? I don't think so, mate. You're not stopping through here. Because this division still existed. When the disciples hear this, you hear their love for the Samaritans. Well, why don't we just call down fire and destroy them? <laughs> so you see the animosity, this division that's been created between Samaritan and Jew. In John chapter 4, we know this, this woman at the well has a conversation with Jesus, and she asks him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. How can we even be talking? Because we don't talk to each other. The division is so deep. And all, after that conversation, she again, she says, you guys say the temple is in Jerusalem. We say it's over here. We're clearly not on the same page. There's deep, deep division. And in John chapter 8, somebody equates being demon-possessed with being Samaritan to Jesus. I mean, that's just not encouraging, right? They say, aren't we right to say you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I mean, clearly those two go together in the mind of a Jew. And so here you see this long embedded history between Samaritan and Jew that's carried on for centuries. And you guys didn't keep the faith, you intermarried, you made your own law, you made your own temple, we're clearly not on the same page, deep, deep division. And now in Acts chapter 8, where is the gospel spreading? Who's accepting the message? Who's coming from Jerusalem to check out what's happening 
in Samaria. Peter and John. People are being baptized in Samaria. They're hearing the good news about Jesus. They're accepting the good news about Jesus. And Simon is a part of that. But then Peter and John say, let's go to Samaria and let's check it out. Whoa, it's really happening. Even Samaritans are becoming disciples of Jesus. A new stage in the mission starts in Acts chapter 8. Because for the first seven chapters, it was solely about Jerusalem. And now the doors are blown open and Samaritans start to accept the gospel. But is this just a Jew and Samaritan thing, this division? I don't think so. I think it exists all over the planet. This is a picture of a church in America at 11 a.m. that's all white. You can go. I mean, it's, you can go to an all-white church. You can go to all-white church anywhere in the world, really. But this in America, this. You remember this, James? Did you go there, James? No, just kidding. <laughs> but but this is an all-white church. Okay, now on the same road, or even in the same neighborhood, at the same time that these people are worshiping, there's also an all-black church. Most often on the same block. White people go to this church. Black people go to this church. Martin Luther King famously quoted, It is appalling. The most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock Sunday morning. Martin Luther King. But I don't think this is just a U.S. problem. Just like it's not a Jew and Samaritan problem. This is a tour of churches in Auckland. This is a church of all islanders. Right? And then, if even in the same neighborhood, this is a church of all Asians. I mean, it's not just a Jew and Samaritan thing. It's not just a white-black thing. It's a human thing. That we all have these deep divisions. And it's not only in churches. It's in adults as well. And it's also in the high schools. In the high schools, you see, this is the cool guy. He's looking at everybody like, I'm so cool and you're not so cool. And then in the same high school, we have the nerds. <laughs> Vote for Pedro. And these are the guys that don't get invited to the birthday parties. And, and it's not just evident in there. It's evident in smaller settings as well. In marriages. Spouses divide over how to spend money. Spouses divide over how to parent their children. And the truth is, if we look at the landscape of humanity and say, man, there's division everywhere. Why? It's because there's division in your heart and there's division in my heart. There's the problem. It's with us. It's a human problem. There's something fundamentally flawed with the human race that divides. It divides on Sunday morning. It divides in the home. It divides in the school. It divides everywhere. And to solve the issue, many organizations get together and come up with plans. And they say, we need to educate people. Which, that, that's helpful, okay? I think there is some education necessary. But when, when, when they claim that it plays a central role in changing racism, that's one UN expert. He says, if we just educate people, we'll change racism. Donald Trump goes a step further and says, if we create jobs, we'll eliminate racism. 
And so everybody has this, hey, here's a solution. I know how to solve it. We'll, we'll switch things around. We'll create programs. Other solutions say if we just redistribute the wealth, if we just don't laugh at people that are not like us, if we just learn to think before we act, everybody has these kind of solutions, but none of them work. They're all superficial, and they don't change the human heart. That's why there's only one solution, one equalizer that levels the playing field. And it's this gospel message in this passage that brings Jew and Samaritan together to worship God. And Philip proclaims that. He goes to Samaria and preaches the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The cross is the great equalizer. That's what brings Jew and Samaritan together, black and white, Asian and Islander, cool and nerdy, spouses who have different opinions. That's what brings people together, not simply education. Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages about the cross, Paul says this about Jesus and his work. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What Jesus does on the cross is he tears down the fence that exists between you and me and you and somebody else and this race and this race. Because there's a hostile barrier between everyone. Jesus on the cross tears it down. And his purpose was to create one new humanity. Not all Jews, not all Samaritan, not all European, not all Asian. One new race, the family of God. That's what his purpose was, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. All of this is being seen in vivid reality in Samaria. There's this long, deep history that has existed, and because of the cross, it's torn down the hostility. And Samaritans are accepting the gospel. Excuse me. And I believe that this is the great equalizer. It's not a program to allow more people to buy homes. It's not shooting with your left hand. It's not redistributing wealth. It's a man dying to tear down division for everyone. And as we take communion together this morning, let's reflect on these two aspects of the cross. Number one, it is the only power to remove division. If there's, if there's relationships in your life that are divided and not reconciled, it doesn't get better. It only, comes, it only becomes reconciled because of the cross. Whether it's racial division or relationship division or whatever division even within the church, only the power of the cross allows you to be reconciled. And secondly, the possibility of the new race isn't an idea we keep to ourselves. It's an idea we spread to everyone. And we let everyone know, hey, there's a level playing field. Everyone can be a part of God's family. It's a message Philip preached in Samaria and was widely accepted. It's a message that will get preached all over the ends of the earth and will be accepted. And as a result of this gospel, division is abolished. Everyone's on level playing field. There's acceptance for all. And this passage says that there was great joy in the city because of this. 
As we take communion as a church this morning, let us reflect on the power of the cross to remove division and also the potential for other people to hear the message of the one new humanity. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for this this reconciling work that happened on the cross that goes well beyond education or money. It's, It's a person dying in our place to tear down all kinds of walls. We pray that we we really reflect on this and allow it to change the way we think, even deep-seated, long-held beliefs about people, Father. And I pray that it doesn't just remain with us, but it's a message that the world needs to hear. It's a reconciling message that brings people together and people back closer to you. We pray, God, that we can live this way and spread this message. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.